You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In the hundred years or so after the Civil War, Southern historians predominantly set the tone for the study of the war. It was something of an exception to the old saying about history being written by the winners. Sort of an implicit, uh, informal bargain was struck between the sections of the country in exchange for the the forceful denial of the the divorce the South had sought and for the uh, destruction and decades of economic stagnation the war touched off in much of the former Confederacy. Uh, Southerners got to keep their war heroes. In fact, Southern heroes, especially, but not exclusively, Robert E. Lee, were popularly cited as American heroes. Uh, Just look at how many military bases and that sort of thing are named after Southern generals. I mean, you got Fort Bragg, Fort Hood, Fort Benning, Fort Lee, Fort A.P. Hill, and there are others. Beginning sometime around the 1960s, the conventional wisdom started to change. And Civil War historians started to view Confederate commanders with a lot more skepticism. The military reputations of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, in particular, took a hit. You still hear people argue, as if it's a white-hot take, that Lee is overrated because he fought too offensively and and was too willing to trade punches, or or some variation of that. Uh, But that's actually been a fairly common position for at least 50 years. Now, Jackson still gets uh, a lot of credit among military historians, specifically for the Valley Campaign, and uh, generally for his his, his knack of of getting the most of his men while in the field. Uh, But he gets a lot of criticism now, too, and he doesn't enjoy anywhere near the the reputation for brilliance that he uh, enjoyed in the, uh, the first half of the 20th century. Now, the other side of that coin is Ulysses Grant. The popular line on Grant in the the early postbellum years, was that uh, he was only successful due to the, the massive advantages he enjoyed and, and his, his willingness to callously sacrifice his men uh, by the tens of thousands. Grant the Butcher. Uh, nowadays, Grant gets a lot more credit, especially for his talent uh, for logistics and his, his, his big-picture understanding uh, of the strategy that was, was necessary to win the war. Now, I think the, the latter position makes more sense uh, for Grant if you compare the probability of success for Union campaigns in which Grant was involved versus campaigns not involving Grant, uh, I suspect Grant looks pretty effective. But, uh, of course, correlation doesn't equal causation and all that. Uh, Returning to the Rebels, though, when it comes purely to military history, now we're not talking about, you know, social or character or political judgment, strictly military history. The subject of today's show has been uh, a bit of an exception to the modern trend that views Confederate commanders with skepticism. Uh, He certainly hasn't been immune to other condemnation, not not in the least, but in purely military matters, Nathan Bedford Forrest's reputation has withstood scrutiny much better than most of his Confederate contemporaries, Uh, to the point that, that one of the many critiques of Braxton Bragg and there are quite a few, uh, is that he didn't give Forrest uh, enough autonomy, uh, a long enough leash, or uh, a big enough command. Now, after the war, Jefferson Davis remarked that if he had realized just how effective Forrest was, uh, he would have made sure to give him a lot more resources and men to work with. But, you know, as Davis tells it, 
Uh, Forrest's superiors' uh, reports to Richmond obscured the level of success that Forrest was achieving. Now, you got to take that with a grain of salt, though. Uh, Davis had a uh, a penchant for uh, reimagining events in a way that tended to favor Davis. So Forrest's exploits earned him the moniker, the Wizard of the Saddle. In part two of our look at Forrest, we're going to start examining some of the the exploits that contributed to that nickname. But as a teaser, this is how HistoryNet describes it. Quote, Forrest earned the nickname the Wizard of the Saddle for his lightning raids, and his rear area strikes became part of the basis for modern warfare strategies and tactics. He was among the most feared commanding officers of the Civil War. Union Major General William Tecumseh Sherman once thundered, and this is HistoryNet quoting Sherman, that devil Forrest must be hunted down and killed if it costs 10,000 lives and bankrupts the federal treasury, end quote. Uh, we're picking up in spring of 1862, which is the point where Forrest's military acumen really starts to reveal itself. Uh, according to uh, American Battlefield Trust, which is a, a charitable trust focused on uh, preserving North American battlefields, quote, that summer, he began to make the kind of lightning raids. Here we go with the lightning raids again. The kind of lightning raids that made him perhaps the single most feared cavalry commander of the entire war. And at the close of the year, he made himself a thorn in the side of Grant's Vicksburg campaign, disrupting his lines of communication and attacking his supply depots. End quote. Lightning raids, unpredictability, and superior mobility were Forrest's calling cards, uh, summed up in his famous common-sense maxim, get there first with the most men. And when you got the enemy on the run, do all you can to keep up the scare. Hello and welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. This is part two of our look at Nathan Bedford Forrest. Hope all of you out there are staying healthy and managing house arrest all right. It's looking as though this is going to be a four-part series on Forrest, and then we'll be off to uh, something new. I've been receiving a lot of really great show suggestions uh, via emails from listeners, so uh, keep those coming. We're all cooped up inside, so it's, it's great to hear from everybody. You can reach the show at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. As always, thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. With the losses of Forts Henry and Donelson, and the fall of Nashville, and most of Middle Tennessee, the Confederate forces were in desperate need of regrouping. They sought to regroup in Corinth, Mississippi, where Sidney Johnson and P.G.T. Beauregard began developing a plan to alter the momentum of the recent engagements. Uh, Grant followed up Fort Donelson by moving down the Tennessee River, establishing a Union presence deeper into Confederate territory and pursuing the rebel army. Johnston and Beauregard decided that rather than, than wait around for Grant, they were going to launch a surprise attack on Grant's camp at Pittsburgh Landing in Tennessee. And that is the backdrop for the bloody Battle of Shiloh, fought April 6th and 7th, 1862. Now, on the first day of the battle, Forrest's cavalry wasn't, uh, wasn't assigned to the front, so they didn't play uh, much of a role in the uh, surprise attack that initially threw back the Yankees. Instead, they were uh, supposed to hang back and, and hold and, and protect important um, crossroads and, and river crossings. But when the action started, Forrest couldn't quite resist uh, getting in on some of that action. They could hear the sounds of rifles and artillery well enough to know things were getting pretty hot, so disobeying orders, Forrest decided that his team would be more useful in the front. He rallied the men for a charge, um, reportedly saying, quote, Our friends are falling by the hundreds at the hands of the enemy, and we're here guarding a damned creek. Let's go and help them. End quote. Shiloh was, was a big battle, and Forrest's relatively minor involvement didn't, didn't make much difference. But uh, he continued to establish to his men, that he was a lead from the front officer, and, and he didn't have any qualms about, about running toward the gunfire. Now, the reasoning behind the Confederate surprise attack on the first day of Shiloh, 
at least in part, was that the rebels needed to defeat Grant's army while the numbers were still relatively equal. That is, before General Don Carlos Buell arrived with reinforcements. What happened, though, was that the day one attack fell just short of the goal of pushing Grant all the way into the Tennessee River. And with the death of Confederate Commanding General Albert Sidney Johnston and the resulting loss of momentum and organization contributing to the failure, The evening after day one of Shiloh, Buell arrived, unbeknownst to the rebel high command. Forrest's scouts saw Buell's men crossing the river, and after Forrest learned of Buell's arrival, he immediately tried to locate Beauregard, who had assumed command after Johnston's death. Now, Forrest wanted to attack now, a night attack. Yeah, hit him now while Buell was still crossing. But he couldn't find Beauregard. And the highest-ranking officer that he could find, uh, General William Hardee, wasn't willing to okay a nighttime offensive. And a frustrated Forrest lamented, we will be whipped like hell tomorrow. And like Forrest expected, day two did not go well for the rebels. Grant, now uh, with a significant numbers advantage over the Confederates, launched an early morning counterattack that sent the rebels reeling. And before long, Beauregard was ordering a withdrawal while he still could. Forrest was assigned to rear guard duty, slowing down the Union pursuit, which just so happened to be headed up by William Tecumseh Sherman, the subject of our last series, as the bulk of the rebel army marched back uh, to their base at Corinth, Mississippi. Forrest's conduct during the retreat to Corinth, highlighted by one of the, uh, the most famous stories of his career, went a long way toward promoting the reputation for ferocity, uh, reckless courage, and, and ridiculous good luck that Forrest enjoyed uh, among both the uh, rebels and the Yankees uh, throughout the rest of the war. In classical terms, you might say that the, the gods seemed to favor Forrest. Yeah, he seemed to get wounded all the time, but it was never debilitating. So during the withdrawal, when, which the Confederate cavalry was covering, Forrest decided that he would uh, turn his men around and hit the Union pursuit uh, right in the mouth to slow them down. And he was able to do so uh, highly successfully, catching the pursuers off guard and and leaving them uh, disorganized and in some cases scattered. Uh, In his report on the the Battle of Fallen Timbers, not to be confused with the Revolutionary War battle of the same name, uh, Sherman described Forrest's uh, maneuver like this, quoting Sherman, The enemy's cavalry came down boldly at a charge, led by Forrest in person, breaking through our line of skirmishers, when the regiment of infantry without cause broke and threw away their muskets and fled, end quote. So Sherman wasn't uh, too happy with his his men's performance there. Uh, Now, this was supposed to be rear guard fighting, but Forrest decided that he would would pursue the now-retreating former pursuers. Uh, In the process, he got way out ahead of his skis. After enthusiastically chasing the temporarily uh, discombobulated bluecoats, Forrest found himself nearly alone, uh, the rest of his men had already stopped, uh, behind Union lines and surrounded by men yelling, kill him. Uh, He had been riding out in front, and most of the men riding behind him pulled up and halted the charge upon realizing that that they had in fact reached the Union lines. Forrest, though, rode crashing right into the Union brigade. So he's surrounded by Yankees yelling, kill him, and trying in earnest to make that happen. But Forrest barely, and and somewhat inconceivably, managed to cut his way out with his his double-bladed saber and two pistols, both of which he emptied. At one point, Forrest took an essentially point-blank gunshot to the side, courtesy of an Austrian rifle wielded by a Yankee soldier, that somehow didn't kill or mortally wound him, uh, despite lodging practically right next to his spine. So with the wound from the, the musket ball bleeding generously and, and his right leg rendered numb by the wound, Forrest, still on horseback, sought to make a hasty getaway. Now this next part is unreal. On the way out, he snatched up a surprised Union soldier by the collar of his blue coat, pulled him up onto the back of his horse, and used the flabbergasted Yankee as a human shield while making his getaway. It's like something from a Rambo movie, right? 
Unfortunately, though, I do need to add a quick footnote. While the details of Forrest's actions at Fallen Timbers are are generally corroborated by uh, multiple witnesses on the scene, that last part, the part about snatching up an unsuspecting Union soldier, is not. So there is a, uh, a decent chance that that particular detail was an embellishment added by a favorable uh, Forrest biographer that was, in turn, picked up by subsequent historians. It's still included in, in, in most Forrest biographies, but it you know, maybe needs an asterisk. So due to the bullet wound, Forrest was out of commission for a couple weeks, spending the, the time recovering in Memphis. He ended up needing a couple surgeries uh, with no anesthesia to get the bullet out. But the incident added to his growing legend and reputation for boldness, which was becoming familiar to nearly everyone fighting uh, in the theater. Forrest took advantage of the time off to do some more recruiting. Yeah, he paid for ads in a Memphis newspaper offering, quote, heaps of fun to Southern boys who wanted to kill some Yankees. Sounds like a good time. Forrest reported to Chattanooga in June to take over a new command. Uh, this time he'd be heading up a, a brigade of, of untested cavalry volunteers from Georgia and Texas, rather than his own recruits. Uh, the new command's first action uh, would come in response to what um, started as a Union advance and concluded with, with enough damage to Union operations in Tennessee to facilitate the invasion of Kentucky by a, a large rebel force under Braxton Bragg. Beginning June 10th, Union General Don Carlos Buell started an advance uh, toward Chattanooga, which is in southeastern Tennessee, uh, close to Georgia. Forrest was assigned to harass the Union vanguard and uh, generally uh, oppose Buell's advance. Forrest, uh, joined by John Morgan, another cavalier, took advantage of Buell's slow pace by raiding into central Tennessee and even all the way into Kentucky. And on July 9th, Forrest set out from Chattanooga, still in Confederate hands, with 1,400 men with the objective of taking the Union Supply Depot in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and thereby putting a, a big damper on uh, the movement against Chattanooga. Forrest began by coaxing the surrender of Union pickets without having to commit to a fight. And this was becoming a, a central tenet of Forrest's uh, approach to war. When possible, it's better to win with a bluff than to uh, bloody up your own men. And, and the way he typically went about doing that was to try to convince the opposing commander that Forrest had many more men under his command and, and more guns than was actually the case. Now, in reality, the Confederates in general, and Forrest in particular, uh, more often than not, were outnumbered by their Yankee opposition. Uh, so to overcome that disadvantage, um, as Forrest described it to an aide, it would, quote, be necessary from time to time for me to show more men than I actually have on the field, end quote. One of Forrest's subordinates later recalled the, the cavalry commander's talent for creating misleading perceptions about his strength, quote, no device for creating this impression was too insignificant to be called into play. The constant beating of kettle drums, the lighting and tending of numerous fires, moving pieces of artillery from one point to another, dismounting of cavalry and parading them as infantry, nothing was overlooked, end quote. Uh, the bulk of the Union force defending Murfreesboro was organized into two groups, one on either side of the town, uh, with a third detachment within the town itself. Forrest's plan was to approach in three separate columns, one assigned to each uh, Union camp, and the other to focus on Murfreesboro proper. The initial approach was unsuccessful. The offensive wasn't executed well, and the Union soldiers were able to hunker down under cover and resist the rebel attackers. Uh, to break the resulting stalemate, Forrest opted to personally lead a direct assault uh, on the Union force that was inside Murfreesboro itself. It, it took some up-close and personal fighting, moving from building to building, but Forrest's uh, force managed to capture the town. And without a breather, he jumped right into the fighting with one of the two Union positions outside town. When the Bluecoats bent but refused to break, Forrest salvaged what supplies could be rummaged from the camp location and uh, hopped over to the other side of town. 
There, he, he demanded the unconditional surrender of the Union fighters. Otherwise, quote, I will have every man put to the sword. Now, the bluff worked. And then another bluff coaxed the surrender of the last Union pockets that was still resisting by pretending he had a much larger force once again than he actually uh, commanded. So with the battle now over, Forrest found himself in custody of, of 1,200 prisoners, along with a, a big haul of valuable munitions and a few artillery pieces uh, to boot. The 1,200 prisoners captured by Forrest's men included numerous uh, former slaves. Uh, at this point in the war, um, the freedmen were still just working in the camps or, or following close behind. They weren't fighting yet. Uh, Forrest's policy for dealing with captured blacks was that if they were from the South, they would be returned to their former masters. There's some controversy over exactly what happened to northern blacks captured by Forrest. There are more than a few reports, including some from Southerners, that Forrest's policy was to simply shoot or hang them on sight. Now, this would be consistent with the absolute indignation Forrest felt at the idea um, that the Yankees were using black uh, Southerners in the fight against the South. However, Forrest biographer Brian Steele Wills says that uh, all of the sources to that effect were reporting on what they had heard secondhand, and Forrest denied ever ordering any summary executions of anyone, black or white. Following Murfreesboro, Braxton Bragg, who not too far in the future would have some, some pretty serious friction with Forrest, described the cavalry commander's conduct at the First Battle of Murfreesboro as gallant, Brilliant operation that deserved immediate reward. Forrest is a valuable soldier. End quote. Shortly thereafter, Forrest received a promotion to Brigadier General on July 21st, uh, 1862. So the story about Forrest starting the war as a private and finishing as a general is technically true, though it's somewhat misleading given the, uh, given the rapid promotion uh, from private to colonel early on. Now, his successes hadn't gone unnoticed by Union commanders either. Uh, Don Carlos Buell assigned uh, Cavalry General William Nelson to track down and destroy Forrest. Notwithstanding his initial enthusiasm, Nelson ultimately concluded that the assignment was a hopeless task. Forrest was clever. Uh, he knew the area and the terrain um, better than anyone from the north, and he had a natural feel for hit-and-run cavalry operations that, that made him nearly impossible to, to pin down uh, as a moving target. Now, before we move on, and just for clarity's sake, the attack on the, the Murfreesboro supply station that we just discussed is the first battle of Murfreesboro. The much larger Battle of Stones River, fought a few months later and sometimes called the Battle of Murfreesboro, is technically the second Battle of Murfreesboro. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the summer of 1862, the Confederates were feeling a little bit of momentum. Forrest had just seen some success at Murfreesboro. And small as it was, it was a welcome bright spot after uh, the losses of Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson and the loss at Shiloh and the devastating capture of New Orleans. But more significantly, though, uh, back east, Robert E. Lee had just won a resounding victory at Manassas after throwing George McClellan off the Virginia Peninsula. And the thinking was that they needed to capitalize on the momentum by taking the war north. Lee was putting together a plan for an invasion of Maryland and Pennsylvania. And in the west, Braxton Bragg and Kirby Smith were looking to launch an invasion from Tennessee into Kentucky. And if things went well, maybe even all the way up to Ohio. Uh, this operation has come to be known as the Heartland Invasion. Kentucky hadn't joined the Confederacy, but there was a lot of pro-Southern sentiment there. So maybe, you know, a real showing uh, of strength in the Bluegrass State, ideally highlighted by a big Confederate victory, could instigate a belated secession. Or at the very least, Kentucky was 
was bound to be fertile recruiting territory once the rebels established a presence there. And in threatening Kentucky, or dare I say Ohio, the rebels hoped to distract from the inevitable Union campaign U.S. Grant was planning against Vicksburg. So in advance of the Confederate invasion into Kentucky, Forrest was summoned for a rendezvous with Bragg and Kirby Smith and given the job of screening the front of the main rebel army, scouting the uh, route of advance. He'd be directly reporting to Leonidas Polk, great name, the Episcopal bishop turned major general. But then Bragg, for some reason, decided to change things. Instead of having Forrest out in front of the army, he decided instead to reassign Forrest and have him focus on recruiting. At a meeting in Bragg's Chattanooga headquarters, Forrest was relieved of his command and sent to Alabama. Predictably, Forrest was not happy with his decision. It seemed like just when he had a new force trained uh, in how he liked to do things uh, and broken in during a successful campaign, the Confederate brass took his men away from him and made him start all over. So he was frustrated with Bragg and with Confederate senior leadership in general. And he didn't hesitate to let his feelings be known. But he went along with it. Now, Forrest, uh, he did a bang-up job with recruiting. Uh, By that fall, 1862, he had raised four regiments, even though the the men had to provide their own weapons. They'd have to start out mostly equipped with with whatever hunting weapons they had on hand or or that could be scrounged. But uh, Forrest figured that before long, he'd equip them with proper military muskets just as soon as as they could capture some from the Yankees, which incidentally is exactly what they did. Uh, eventually getting their hands on some on some nice new rifles courtesy of the Bluecoats in Tennessee. Even so, as successful as Forrest's recruiting efforts were, Bragg had effectively deprived himself uh, of the services of one of, if not the, most competent commanders the Confederate Army, or the cavalry anyway, had, uh, especially in the Western theater. It's like benching your best batter so that he can you know, go work as a hitting instructor in the minor leagues. Baseball statisticians who are into advanced metrics have a stat they call WAR, which is an acronym for wins above replacement. WAR is supposed to be a a quantification of just how valuable a player is to a team, measured in terms of the the number of additional games the team uh, should expect to win over a season with a player, compared to if the team instead had a, a typical replacement player. Uh, the calculation is supposed to to combine the full scope of a player's uh, offensive ability and and defensive ability using a host of of more easy to quantify stats and synthesizing it all into into a single number. So, uh, Los Angeles Angels center fielder Mike Trout has the highest WAR had the highest WAR last season. It was eight point six, if you're wondering, and he's often considered the best current Major League Baseball player. Uh, the thing is, though, the Angels' record last year was 72-90, and 90, which isn't very good, and makes you wonder how bad they would be if they didn't have Mike Trout. Now, the point I'm trying to make is that uh, if you were to grade Civil War commanders according to their wins above replacement, or, you know, some equivalent, I have to think that, that Forrest scores pretty highly. Now, he happened to be on the losing team, but there are a lot of really good ballplayers with high war ratings who play for losing teams. But... You know, they still added a a lot of value. And logically, a team with a player who adds a lot of value can expect to do considerably better with him than without him. So when Braxton Bragg sent Forrest to go recruit in Alabama right before launching the invasion of Kentucky, he was doing the equivalent of benching Mike Trout or Max Scherzer for a playoff game. And that's the kind of decision that tends to get managers fired. As things turned out, the Kentucky invasion achieved... I guess you might say a mediocre level of success, uh, but it came nowhere near close to meeting expectations. And it didn't accomplish what the rebels uh, needed it to accomplish. A a coaxed surrender at at, uh, Munfordville in mid-September netted 4,000 Union POWs and some much-needed supplies. And Bragg oversaw the inauguration of a a figurehead Confederate governor of Kentucky, which was... Uh, effectively meaningless, but, but you know, served a, a propaganda purpose, uh, I guess. And the campaign came to an inconclusive conclusion on October 8th at Perryville, 
which uh, is the largest battle fought in Kentucky. Bragg and Polk's rebel force had had some tactical success against um, Buell's Union army, uh, dishing out over uh, 4,000 Union casualties while taking about 3,000, despite the Union numerical superiority. But Bragg wasn't able to press uh, what amounted to a temporary advantage and opted instead to leave the field and pull back into Tennessee, satisfied with the haul of weapons and supplies captured in Kentucky. More importantly, the thousands of Kentuckians expected to rally around the rebel army didn't materialize, and the rebels didn't have the strength to establish a firm foothold in the bluegrass state. The campaign might have been more interesting if Bragg had turned Forrest loose to wreak havoc and raise volunteers uh, alongside the larger Confederate army, but instead Forrest spent the campaign gathering up recruits in Alabama. In the fall, Forrest and his new relatively green command were assigned to operate under General John Breckinridge. Breckinridge was a former senator from Kentucky uh, who had served in the Buchanan administration as vice president of the United States, a position he had assumed at uh, only 36 years of age, which for any trivia buffs makes him the youngest ever vice president. Uh, Most recently, Breckinridge had come in second, behind Honest Abe Lincoln, in the 1860 presidential election, uh, in which he was the candidate of the southern wing of the fractured Democratic Party. Breckinridge and Bragg sent um, Bedford Forrest with his relatively green cavalry um, to operate behind Union lines in western Tennessee, focusing mostly on railroads and logistics. The goal was to make the Union occupation as cumbersome and ineffective as possible, Uh, He began by neutralizing the largest Union force in the area with a clever bluff, allowing for relatively unimpeded freedom of movement. Now, this was where Forrest was at his best, operating in open country that he knew very well. He'd spent his childhood in the backwoods, was completely comfortable out in the wilderness, and he knew the terrain in western Tennessee as, as well as anyone. On top of that, Forrest was relentless in his pursuit of accurate recon. He was always on the move, out surveying the local terrain, avenues of approach and retreat, and any notable landmarks, man-made or natural, uh, that had potential to impact a fight. Now, of course, he didn't do all the scouting himself, though he did plenty personally, but he also constantly sent out teams of his cavaliers to act as additional eyes. If there were Yankees in the area, Forrest needed to know about it, and if there weren't, that was important information too. It's, quote, just as important to know where they ain't as to know where they are is how Forrest put it. So free to roam all around western Tennessee and northern Mississippi, Forrest became a monkey wrench in Union operations, distracting from and interfering with Grant's movements against Vicksburg. And in terms of uh, overall rebel strategy, keeping Grant away from Vicksburg was about as big of an objective as there was. Now, I, I wouldn't really say that Grant or his, his right-hand man, Sherman, were afraid of anything uh, when they were strategizing, but if anyone could make the Union honchos nervous, it was Forrest. Uh, what worried Grant was that Forrest was so unpredictable. The rebel cavalryman, quote, was amenable to no known rules of procedure, was a law unto himself for all military acts, and was constantly doing the unexpected at all times and places, end quote. A war correspondent who knew Grant well and spent a lot of time in camp with Grant and his staff described Forrest as, quote, the only Confederate cavalryman of whom Grant stood in much dread, end quote. Now, Grant's thoughts on Forrest were inspired by the, uh, the latter's rampage in late 1862 uh, into early 1863, all throughout western Tennessee and northern Mississippi. And like I said, this was uh, vintage Nathan Bedford Forrest. He, he had a relatively independent, highly mobile command with some room to move and a consistent advantage in intelligence. And when he had an advantage, he didn't hesitate to press it. So on December 18th, Forrest Cavalry captured a Union outpost at Carroll Station, which allowed for a convenient upgrading of the weaponry um, that they could bring to bear. The next day, Forrest locked down a Union garrison at Jackson with a feigned attack, uh, while at the same time he sent out separate detachments uh, of his his own cavalry force to seize the nearby railroads and bridges. Uh, not long after, the surrender of 700 Yankees at Humboldt 
led to another haul of ordnance and supplies. Over the next few weeks, the same scene was repeated uh, at several more Union outposts. Everywhere they went, Forrest Cavalry helped themselves to Washington's generosity and captured more prisoners. And critically, the rapid-fire raids sapped the confidence of Union detachments operating in western Tennessee. Forrest knew where the Yankees were in the area, but they couldn't seem to get a, a bead on him until he was knocking on the door. Now, all of this obviously, obviously couldn't go unanswered by Union commanders. So they threw Forrest a surprise Christmas party. More than 10,000 men, organized in three separate groups, coordinated by General Jeremiah Sullivan, were assigned to the task of converging on Forrest from three sides and either capturing his command or obliterating it. High water on the fourth side of the box was the final component of the trap. Forrest, though, sniffed out the potential disaster just in the nick of time and managed to narrowly slip the noose under cover of night via an urgently repaired bridge. The Yankees had mistakenly concluded that the bridge was non-functional, but Forrest, on the scene in person and and right in the middle of the work, uh, oversaw emergency repairs that that got the bridge just barely serviceable um, enough for the cavalry to cross uh, to safety in the night. Forrest wasn't quite out of the woods yet. Union infantry, under Colonel Cyrus Dunham, uh, was attempting to block the escape route south, holding a strong position under cover. On New Year's Eve, December 31st, 1862, Forrest confronted Dunham's position. First, he moved his artillery to the front, Napoleon Bonaparte style, and next he ordered the artillery to focus fire on the wooden fence that was providing the the Yankees their uh, principal cover. Then Forrest ordered two separate flanking maneuvers, one on either Union flank. Uh, Dunham kept his cool, and he tried to counter the attempted uh, envelopment with a a direct assault right on the rebel center. But the Yankee advance was charging directly into the teeth of the uh, artillery that Forrest had just brought up to deal with the fence. Now, if the counterattack managed to reach and capture the artillery pieces quickly enough, uh, they might have had Forrest in a very bad position. But the uh, Bluecoat counterattack was pushed back before they could get to the guns. And with the maneuver having failed, Dunham was now in a, a potentially disastrous position, and he ordered a hasty withdrawal. Uh, Forrest smelled blood and ordered an immediate pursuit of the retreating Yankees. Um, his report described it thusly, quote, We drove them through the woods with great slaughter. Now, Dunham now recognized that the retreat was turning into a rout, and he tried to regroup and continue the fight. So he requested and received from Forrest a ceasefire to negotiate surrender terms. Or, Forrest demanded a surrender, depending on who you believe. The chain of events that followed was unpredictable and confusing, even to the people involved. Just as negotiations were getting started, a separate Union force that was not connected to uh, Dunham's approached Forrest from the rear. Now, this other Yankee force presumably uh, was unaware of the ceasefire and began engaging the Confederate cavalry and demanding Forrest's immediate surrender. Now, Forrest was obviously surprised. He thought he had a detachment protecting his back, and he also thought that he had just agreed to a ceasefire to discuss the Yankees' surrender. So at first, he made demonstrations as if he were uh, himself on the verge of surrendering to the Union force to his rear that had just surprised him. But while making that presentation, he was actually hurriedly uh, arranging for a quick escape. Now, you'll recall the flanking force that Forrest had sent out, uh, the one that was about to box Colonel Dunham's men in when the truce was called. Well, as Forrest is preparing for the the getaway, they realized that something had gone haywire, and so they pressed the attack on Dunham on their own initiative. Dunham's already disorganized men basically fell apart on the renewed pressure. Sensing his chance, Forrest ordered his men to charge him both ways, and then skedaddle the other direction through the chaos that had had, uh, broken out in Dunham's former position. The maneuver was successful, and the next day, January 1st, 1863, Forrest defeated another smaller Union force to secure passage across the Tennessee River, and with it, the escape from the Union soldiers that had been pressing him on all sides in western Tennessee. 
Now, perhaps the funniest thing about the whole episode in West Tennessee was that when uh, General Grant received a report on the results of Parker's Crossroads, which was the battle we just discussed, uh, he was informed that Forrest had been annihilated. His force was in tatters, and the cavalry was no longer a threat. Now, Grant would have loved nothing more than for that report to be accurate, but uh, it was wishful thinking. Instead, Forrest was on his way to Columbia, Tennessee, to rendezvous with Bragg's army. And after a couple of weeks uh, to recover, Forrest embarked on a new mission, this one to join up with Joseph Wheeler. Once the two cavalry groups united, their job would be to make life difficult for Union transport ships on the Cumberland River. The Union Freshwater Navy in the area knew knew what was up, and they took countermeasures to avoid the harassment. Uh, Wheeler got antsy and decided to launch an attack against a Union garrison uh, in the area um, over Forrest's objections. Prior to the engagement, Forrest instructed his aides to make sure that if he was killed in the battle, the report noted that he was against the attack. So when the attack on the Dover Fort, which uh, held about three times more Yankees than the rebel attackers, uh, when the attack was forcefully repulsed, friction predictably emerged between Forrest and Wheeler, with Forrest reportedly saying, quote, I advised you against this attack. Nothing you can now say or do will bring back my brave men lying dead and wounded and freezing around that fort tonight, end quote. Even more, Forrest suggested that Wheeler put in his report that he would, quote, be in my coffin before I will fight under your command, end quote. For his part, Wheeler replied that he accepted responsibility for the failure. Realistically, Forrest deserves at least some of the blame for the defeat. He did fight hard, but the attack that he had led was uh, not very effectively organized. A couple months later, in early March, Forrest had the opportunity to redeem himself at Thompson Station, where he, he fought under Earl Van Dorn. After an initial Union attack forced the rebel defenders back, Forrest was able to maneuver around the Federal flank into the rear and force a surrender. Thompson Station was the scene of a great feat of heroism, though it wasn't exactly on the part of Nathan Bedford Forrest, or the Yankees he was fighting for that matter. No, it was Forrest's horse, Roderick. Uh, Sadly, being Nathan Bedford Forrest's horse was one of the most dangerous assignments in the Civil War just shy of 30 brave equine soldiers um, that held that title were killed in action during the war. Now, we obviously aren't going to discuss the the unfortunate deaths of all of those horses, in part because it would be too depressing, but this particular horse bears mention. Roderick was a a genuine war horse, courageous, loyal, and tough. During the fighting at Thompson Station uh, in Tennessee, Roderick was wounded three times, but stayed in the fight, providing the Confederate commander with uh, mobility back and forth along the lines and into the fray. After the third wound, though, Forrest decided that that Roderick had had done his duty for the day, and um, placing the horse in the care of an aide, Forrest ordered that uh, Roderick be taken back behind Confederate lines where his wounds could be properly tended to. Roderick the war horse, though, had other ideas. When he realized he was being uh, being benched for the rest of the day, Roderick loosed himself from his, his attendants and began making his way back to join Forrest in the front. Three separate times, one, one for each wound he had sustained, Roderick successfully jumped over fences that, um, that tried to block his way back to his commanding officer. And after the admirable display of courage and, and loyalty, Roderick succeeded in finding his way back to General Forrest. Sadly, though, uh, it was by Forrest's side that Roderick sustained his fourth wound of the day, and it would be the wound that finally ended the life of Roderick the Warhorse. Now, this story was almost certainly embellished in the retelling, so we probably need to stick to the, the legend label um, that HistoryNet applies, which is where the version that, that we just heard came from. But it's a cool story nonetheless, and even if Roderick's heroics have been exaggerated, the fact that these types of stories arose around Forrest, and um, even his horse, uh, tells you something about how he was perceived by his contemporaries. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, 
like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. In the aftermath of Thompson Station, Forrest's significant contribution to the victory didn't go unnoticed, uh, as he was rewarded with a new command. This time, he'd head up an entire cavalry division, rather than his current brigade. Forrest started strong in the new position, uh, capturing over 500 Yankees against only a handful of losses, following a successful flanking maneuver um, against a Union garrison at Brentwood. And he followed that up with the capture of 230 more soon after. And that brings us to what I think is another really good Civil War story. It's one that I, I barely knew anything about before I started researching this show, but that I think is, is worthy of a detailed retelling. And in April 1863, Union forces launched a daring, though a somewhat unheralded, raid from Eastport in the very northeast of Mississippi. The goal of the raid, which was led by Colonel Abel Strait, was to covertly move east through the inhospitable and relatively unpopulated terrain in northern Alabama, with an ultimate goal of attacking, capturing, and severing the Western and Atlantic Railroad. Now, the reason the Western and Atlantic was important is that it was the chief route being used by the rebels to feed and supply Braxton Bragg's army in Tennessee. So a successful raid by Strait would leave the army, the army of Tennessee effectively cut off. At the very least, Bragg would need to evacuate his position in favor of a location that could be supported, abandoning eastern Tennessee, which um, President Lincoln viewed as a very important area, along with northwestern Georgia, to the Union. At least part of what makes the raid so interesting, to me anyway, is that because the avenue of approach was uh, such a treacherous route, Strait's men were traveling by mule. So it was 1,700 or so Yankees, uh, many traveling by mule, some on foot. Now, you probably heard that mules have something of a reputation for stubbornness, uh, someone who, who won't allow himself to be, to be talked out of a stupid idea or position might be called mule-headed, for instance. And, uh, of course, that reputation is, is well-earned. So Strait's Yankee Raiders, uh, most of these guys were more or less familiar and comfortable with horses, but they were mostly inexperienced with mules. They were dealing uh, with not only tough terrain, hostile locals, rebel harassment, and, and a breakneck pace, but also obstinate, contentious, and just plain mean mule mounts. Wikipedia has a three-paragraph article about Strait's Raid, and nowhere in that article does the word mule appear. But like I said, I think the mules are an important part of the story, so we're going to diverge for a second and learn about mules. A, a mule is the uh, usually sterile offspring of a male donkey and a female horse. They usually run about 800 to 1,000 pounds, and uh, quoting Wikipedia to give them a chance to redeem themselves uh, to mules for the oversight in the article on Straits Raid, quote, The mule is valued because, while it has the size and ground-covering ability of its dam, that's the horse's mother, it is stronger than a horse of similar size and inherits the endurance and disposition of the donkey's sire, tending to require less food than a horse of similar size, end quote. So the Union Raiders weren't using mules because they, they thought it would make them look cool. Mules handle bad terrain very well. They have hellacious endurance, and they need less food than horses. And they're strong, so they can carry a lot of supplies and munitions. Uh, returning again to Wikipedia, which <laughs> I promise you is not a source that I consult very often uh, other than when I'm researching mules. Quote, with its short, thick head, long ears, thin limbs, small, narrow hooves, and short mane, the mule shares characteristics of a donkey. In height and body, shape of neck and rump, uniformity of coat and teeth, it appears horse-like. And finally, to round out the muleology for the day, 
Uh, a quote from Charles Darwin, quote, The mule always appears to me a most surprising animal, that a hybrid should possess more reason, memory, obstinacy, social affection, powers of muscular endurance, and length of life than either of its parents, seems to indicate that art has here outdone nature. End quote. So, bottom line, mules are pretty impressive animals, but they can be very difficult to work with. Uh, Darwin suggests that um, mules, a strategically bred hybrid, are superior to both horses and donkeys. I suspect the men riding with Colonel Strait, though, might have held a different opinion, at least after the, the mule raid had concluded. Now, in all fairness to the mules, Colonel Strait and his men weren't, uh, weren't exactly getting the pick of the litter. Many of, of their mules had very little training and weren't, uh, weren't at all interested in, in going on a long hike through northern Alabama. So the raid was going to be a struggle, yeah, even if they didn't have any, any rebel cavalry haranguing them at every turn. And speaking of rebel cavalry, some southern horsemen operating near um, the Eastport jumping-off point took notice that the Union garrison there was stockpiling hundreds of mules. They weren't sure exactly what was in the works, but they knew it was probably bad for Southerners. I mean, you don't just gather up hundreds of mules for the fun of it. And so they decided to interfere the best way that they could think of. Under cover of night, the rebels snuck onto the grounds uh, around the garrison, opened the gates of the corral holding the mules, and did their very best to convince the stubborn mules to run off, which a few hundred did. Uh, it took the Yankees a couple days to gather up the escaped mules, and they didn't find uh, nearly all of them. Needless to say, the great mule escape delayed the start of the raid. But, with as many mules collected as was reasonably possible, Strait and his men left on April 21st. As we mentioned up front, the muleteers were traveling through a lightly populated area, but there were still locals there. And to the Alabamans and Mississippians that uh, witnessed the, the raiders riding their mules, or were trying to lead the uncooperative animals, the scene was comical. Inevitably, the brigade earned what was probably a predictable nickname, the Jackass Brigade. And of course, the ridicule was not exactly good for morale. Strait's men were, well, they were real soldiers. I mean, these were serious fighting men. And they didn't have to be told that the obstinate mules weren't, uh, weren't exactly good for the brigade's image. Thanks in part to clever misdirection turning Confederate eyes towards Alabama, it wasn't until almost a week later that the rebels fully grasped what Strait was up to, and Bragg assigned Forrest and his cavalry to intercept the mule raiders. Union cavalry under Grenville Dodge had been assigned to distract Forrest and keep him off Strait's back. Uh, but Dodge was unsuccessful in that effort. Now, upon receiving his orders, Forrest's men set off just after midnight on horseback and needing to overcome the Yankee head start, uh, along with the bad terrain and the lousy weather, which also inhibited Dodge's ability to protect the mule raid. Straight figured Forrest would probably be after him eventually, but he had expected to have uh, more time to move uninhibited. Instead, Forrest closed the distance faster than expected, and at Sand Mountain in north-central Alabama, he caught up with Colonel Strait's mule raiders. Uh, the Battle of Days Gap followed. Strait wasn't prepared to play defense yet, and his extended column was hit from behind. Relying on quick thinking and hard fighting from the Midwesterners under his command, Strait repulsed Forrest rebels, allowing them to resume the march. Uh, Forrest didn't have a strong enough force to overrun the Yankees, but he had enough to implement a clever strategy. He'd send out small detachments assigned to harass Strait's men and, and feign a large assault, while the rest of the Southern Cavaliers slept. So over and over, he repeated the same tactic, instructing the men, quote, Whenever you see anything blue, shoot at it, and do all you can to keep up the scare, end quote. The objective wasn't to destroy the Mule Raiders, or even to stop them. The goal was to make them miserable and, critically, prevent them from getting any sleep. Now, Colonel Abel Strait was no dummy, and after a little while, he, he caught on to what Forrest was up to. Uh, in response, he set up an ambush designed to make the, the rebel harassers pay a steep price for the involuntary insomnia they were imposing 
on the Yankees. The ambush was successful, emphatically throwing back the pursuing rebel detachment and capturing two cannon in the process. Those were hard to come by for uh, Southern commanders uh, anyway, and in Forrest's current setting, they were irreplaceable. The Union victory, though small in scale, earned straight a harassment-free day of mule riding and stuck in Forrest's craw to permanent long-term effect. A pattern set in after that, after the ambush. Strait would turn and prepare to fight during the day, inconclusively engaging whichever rebel detachment was on the clock for that shift of mule scaring, and then Strait would get in as much of a night march as his men could manage. Well-placed ambushes kept the rebels honest, but the Yankees were getting more and more sleep-deprived. Whenever the Yankees uh, purchased a little rest with hard fighting, Forrest made sure it was short-lived. On May 2nd, as the Mule Raiders approached Black Creek, Colonel Strait thought he saw an opportunity to get Forrest off of his back. After securing the one bridge in the area, Strait set up a skirmish line to cover the crossing, and once all were across, hastily burned the bridge. The plan worked, and Forrest's men weren't able to get to the bridge quickly enough to save it. The muleteers were safely on the opposite side of Black Creek, and soon after, rushing for Rome, Georgia. But, of course, that would have been too easy. A uh, young girl named Emma Sampson, who lived on a nearby farm, helpfully agreed to show General Forrest to a nearby passable ford. After promising the girl's mother that she'd be home in time for supper, Forrest and the farm girl led the rebel cavaliers to the ford. And while the other men crossed, Forrest did indeed escort the young lady back home. Before long, he was once again nipping at the heels of the Union mule skinners, and she was outfitted with one heck of a story to tell for the rest of her life. Strait tried to keep pushing his men, but they were getting near the end of their rope. Uh, in his own words, quote, Many of our animals and men were entirely worn out and unable to keep up with the column. Behind the rear guard, they were captured, end quote. Inevitably, they had to take a break. Men and mules both need to eat and sleep. And when they did, Forrest was ready to pounce. The sleep-deprived Yankees were barely able to resist, but Strait recognized they wouldn't be able to keep it up for long. The only hope, as he said, was to get to and across the Ostanala River in Georgia. Georgians, forgive my pronunciation. Uh, cross before the rebels caught up and impede their crossing. Strait hoped that if they could pull it off, it would, quote, delay Forrest a day or two and give us time to collect horses and mules, a little time to sleep, without which it was impossible to proceed, end quote. And to make that happen, Strait selected the men in his command who were in the best shape for the ride and sent them quickly ahead to Rome, Georgia, to take the bridge. The effort, though, was thwarted in part by locals who had heard about what Strait was doing and decided to interfere. And their plan was simple. Strait needed to use a ferry to cross the Coosa River before getting to the Ustanala, and the advance party had already crossed on the same ferry, so local Georgians hid the ferry. The resulting delay, while Strait moved his men to cross the closest nearby bridge, cost precious time, once again allowing Forrest to close the distance and prepare for yet another assault on the Yankees. And as a kicker, the ferrymen raced to Rome ahead of the advance party and warned the Romans, who prevented the party from occupying the bridge that they had been after. On May 3rd, Colonel Strait was hoping to make the final push to Rome, which was about 25 miles. But with forest troopers at hand, he was instead forced to stop and turn to fight at Cedar Bluff, Alabama. A fitting name, as it turns out. As Strait remembered the condition of his men at the time, quote, A large portion of my best troops actually went to sleep while lying in line of battle under severe skirmish fire, end quote. Forrest had a pretty good idea that the Yankee muleteers were mentally spent, without much uh, capacity left to resist. So he flexed his artillery briefly before proposing a ceasefire to allow Strait the opportunity to surrender. Before speaking with Forrest, Strait met with his subordinate officers. To a man, they all counseled surrender, 
according to the straight, the officers were in no better shape than the men. Quote, exhausted from fatigue and loss of sleep. Straight noted that it was impossible to keep them awake. End quote. And on top of that, a substantial part of the ammunition that the mules had been carrying uh, had gotten wet and was now unusable. Uh, of course, Colonel Strait was exhausted too, but he was also a warrior, so he really didn't like the idea of giving in. The goal was, was in sight, after all, uh, if they could only resist Forrest a little longer. Now, for his part, Forrest tried to make the decision easy. He offered dignified terms, and he did his level best to visually inflate the size of his force. As described by the Encyclopedia of Alabama, quote, Forrest craftily reaffirmed Strait's misconception that the Confederates greatly outnumbered his brigade. In order to reinforce the ruse, Forrest's artillery repeatedly rode in circles in and out of Strait's view along a neighboring ridge, end quote. The Yankee colonel was uh, too tired to fool around, so he got right down to brass tacks, asking Forrest point-blank how many men and guns he had, and saying he wouldn't surrender unless Forrest told him the real numbers. Now, Forrest said that the 15 guns Strait had, had seen were just the pieces that had been brought up so far, and as for the men, quote, I've got enough to whip you out of your boots, end quote. Now, Strait continued to filibuster, and Forrest directed his men to start preparing for the assault. Now, Colonel Strait knew his men uh, just didn't have the energy to resist for long, so he reluctantly agreed to Forrest's terms, surrendering the 1,400-plus men under his command. Now, when you're playing poker and you fold, you generally don't get to find out what cards your opponent was, was actually holding, uh, whether he was bluffing or, or had the goods. But perhaps unfortunately for Colonel Strait, in this case, he got to find out the truth. And the truth was that Forrest was bluffing big time, uh, which Strait learned when Forrest had to show his cards as his men disarmed the Yankee muleteers. Forrest later recalled his opponent's reaction, quote, When Strait saw we were barely 400, he demanded to have his arms back and we should fight it out. I just laughed at him and patted him on the shoulder and said, Ah, Colonel, all is fair in love and war, you know. Unquote. Now, the epilogue to this story is that after their capture, Strait and his men were sent to Richmond as POWs, which was not a particularly uh, pleasant fate. And sadly, due to their already poor shape from the breakneck pace of the raid compounded by Confederate war shortages, Nearly 200 of those men died as prisoners. However, in 1864, Colonel Strait led over 100 Union prisoners in a successful breakout attempt. Relying on a Byzantine tunneling system, the ingenious Yankees had covertly constructed. As for Forrest, the dogged pursuit of the mule raid and the clever ruse that convinced the numerically superior raiders to surrender continued to feed into the legend of the Wizard of the Saddle uh, that was developing in the Deep South. But Forrest's reputation hadn't grown exclusively among Southerners. Union leaders, too, had taken notice of Forrest's daring and effectiveness. It was becoming increasingly apparent that for Union forces conducting major operations in the Deep South, Forrest represented a threat that needed to be accounted for. And in 1863, General U.S. Grant was conducting just such an operation as he tenaciously sought to capture the rebel stronghold at Vicksburg, Mississippi, the last vestige of Confederate control of the Big River. Grant and the team he was leading had already developed a somewhat begrudging respect for Forrest. Sylvanus Codwallader, a subordinate officer on Grant's staff, recorded this impression, quote, Forrest was one of the ablest cavalry officers developed on either side, especially for partisan warfare. Bold and reckless, almost to a fault, he often accomplished by sheer audacity and celerity of movement what could never have been done in any other way. His thorough topographical knowledge of the country enabled him to take advantage of every road and bridle pass, and thus avail himself of the most desirable places for offensive and defensive fighting. He was quick to take advantage of our errors and the exact moment in which to strike. End quote. Ultimately, Forrest would become the single biggest thorn 
in the side of William Tecumseh Sherman, who took over out west when Grant was called east. Sherman also acknowledged the importance of neutralizing Forrest and made it a top priority. Quoting Sherman, quote, Forrest is the very devil, and I think he has got some of our troops under cower. I have two officers at Memphis that will fight all the time. I will order them to go out and follow Forrest to the death if it takes 10,000 lives and breaks the treasury. There will never be peace in Tennessee until Forrest is dead. That's going to wrap up part two of our look at Nathan Bedford Forrest. As I mentioned earlier, this is uh, looking to be a uh, four-part episode. In part three, which will hopefully be coming up for too long, we're going to look at some uh, difficult relationships Forrest had with both his superiors and his subordinates. And part four will examine Forrest's conduct uh, both at the end of the war and then after the war. And I learned early on that uh, the audience for this show is, is generally more, um, more interested in the war itself and less interested in, in post-war politics. I have a feeling that Forrest is going to be an exception to that due to the notorious activities with which he has become associated. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach the show at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. And I hope everyone out there is staying healthy and sane in this absolutely crazy period of history we're living through. Thanks as always for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.